Nobody needs a study. They've done scores of them. But nobody needs a, a study to know that stress is a killer. It is. The Harvard Business Review suggests that minimally 60%, possibly as high as 90% of all medical office visits are related to stress. A number of years ago, Carrie and I were at a pastor and wives retreat and Howard Hendricks was there teaching. He was 66 at the time. I'll never forget it. And he said, when he was 66 years of age, he said, um, and he's talking to pastors, he said, you got to learn to handle stress. Because 60, yeah, 66 or two-thirds, excuse me, two-thirds of my graduating class, he said, he was 66, two-thirds of my graduating class was already dead. Graduating class from seminary. And the reason, he said, as he did a study on them, he did a number of studies, but he, he did a study and he said the vast majority of them are related to gastrointestinal issues, stress. I remember very vividly, I remember exactly where I was. I leaned over to Carrie and said, honey, it's not too late. We can get out of this thing. When I went for life insurance and realizing that an L.A. police officer is cheaper to get life insurance than a pastor, you realize stress can kill you. You got to learn to deal with it. In, in an article, Jim Berg, his article called Looking at Pressure Biblically, he makes this statement. He says, if we don't learn to handle pressure... It will take its pain out on your body. What will it do? It'll show up in muscle tension, headaches, insomnia, fatigue, ticks, heart palpitations, stomach disorders. I wonder as I read this text if that's not what some of the stuff that David is experiencing. When you look at this text, he says, for day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was sapped. I, I don't think it's the kind of thing as I worked real hard yesterday. The reality is a lot of you work really hard on a, on a Saturday and then you wake up on Sunday and you're like, whoa, man. I mean, bottom line is, is eight hours of sleep, a couple of ibuprofen, you're going to be good. But I think this is deeper. He, he says, my strength was sapped like what? In the heat of summer. It's like all of my energy just got ripped out of me. I have no dreams, I have no passion, I have no energy. I, I, I am just a lump of flesh. When this article goes on, in Berg's article, he identifies three things that can do this in a body. And his, his whole point is you got to learn to biblically handle pressure. Where does it come from? And he gives us three options. There's probably more, but I like his three. He said, number one, are we overcome by guilt from past or current sin? I think that's a lot of people. It was David's. And, and, and if that sin is not dealt with, or if you're one of those individuals who you know you're forgiven, but it doesn't touch your heart, and you kind of find yourself in that place, always waiting for the shoe to drop, always waiting for God to kind of like be fed up with you, then that's a pressure, and it can, it can kill you. Number two, Berg goes on to say, is are we overcommitted in areas of our lives that may not be within God's will for us at the current time? In other words, it's good. It's just not what God wants for you. And that may be one of the greatest challenges a lot of us face. Third, he says, are we overdrawn in the amount of strength that God has allotted for us to draw upon? In other words, are you, are you pushing the, the margins too far? It's one thing to push margins for you know, two, three weeks, maybe even a season, a couple of months. 
But if you keep pushing the margins, it's going to show up. And it's going to show up in some areas that's going to affect your health. What I want to focus on this morning is this first one. Because that's where a lot of Christians live and they don't understand the journey that even David leads us on in this text. And it's a journey to discover the hope of forgiveness. David starts, honestly, in this text with the answer. He kind of starts in a place where it's all settled and it's done. Blessed is he whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord does not commit against him and in whose sin there is, or whose spirit there's no deceit. So he starts with the, the answer. It's the next verse that begins with the problem. And that's where I want to begin. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. He uses two words kind of interchangeably in this text, silence and covering. And what he tells us is is that when it comes to our sin, if we're ever tempted to cover ourselves or to be silent, that's where the sin takes root and leads us to this place of devastating depression, energy loss, discouragement, hopelessness. Silence is not something where you just quit talking. That's not what David did. In fact, my guess is is he was talking all the time. The setting behind this text, probably a lot of you know. David was one day out on the veranda and he was kind of looking out and it was beautiful. He was supposed to be off at war. David was known for that. He was a warrior. He was a great fighter and a phenomenal leader. And for whatever reason, the text doesn't give us the full reason, but he doesn't go out to war and he stays home and he looks down and he sees a woman by the name of Bathsheba. Now, one of the things that David had a problem periodically was kind of a, uh, maybe a a self-justification for what I deserve because of all the difficulty of what I do. I'm the king and there's a heavy burden upon me. And he looks down and he sees this woman by the name of Bathsheba. And he does something that you and I probably can't do, but he could as a king. Please go get her and bring her up to me. He sleeps with her, defiles her, dishonors God. And then he realizes, what am I going to do? And sin oftentimes begets sin and it births this fear in us. And David starts to conspire this crazy story, really crazy story. And he thinks to himself, wow, I think I need to have her husband killed. So he sends her husband up front in battle and he gets killed. And David thinks, well, hold on. I get the beauty. Husband's dead. No one needs to know. Let's move on. What happens? He covers himself. He covers himself. What does that look like? To cover yourself is to, to take upon yourself the assignment of dealing with your sin. To fix it. To remedy it. To make amends with God. To take care of it. Got to deal with sin. And we're tempted. We're tempted because of our pride. We're tempted because we might have to tell somebody what we really did. And we cover up. 
It's a silence that is not that we quit talking. It's that we take ownership and manage our sin by somehow feeling that what we do will remedy, amend what we've done against God or maybe even others. It might sound like this. God, I blew it. I blew it. Okay, Lord, I'm going to get serious. I'm going to serve in the nursery, Lord. I'm going to change diapers for the glory of Christ. And Lord, you'll see how serious I am. Or God, I'm going to serve in middle school. I mean, that's, it takes a warrior to serve in the middle school. I mean, they do their half-nighters. And man, you know, by the time you get home, it's an all-nighter. And I'm going to serve you, God, or I'm going to give, or, oh, God, I tell you what, I, I blew it. I made a mess. I'm sorry. I'm going to go on a short-term mission trip, and I'm going to go to a really hard place. I'm, I'm not doing this short-term mission garbage to Hawaii. That's nothing. That's called a vacation. I'm going to go to a third-world place. I'm going to go where they're impoverished. And we literally, I have heard people, they can walk themselves into this. And what they're really doing is trying to amend to God. Now, I'm, I'm a fan of 12-step. I know it's got some loopholes, but in general, I'm a fan. But one of the dangers in the fourth step, that's that step where you call people that you've wounded, you call people that you've abused as an alcoholic or as a drug addict. Fourth step is where you're amending all of the people you have wounded. One of the dangers of that is that we can actually think that that amending of this relationship actually takes care of this one. If we're not careful, it can simply be another cover. I'm taking care of my sin. I'm dealing with it seriously. But our hiding creates a fear that affects all of our relationships. It did David. God was no longer a refuge. He was a heavy burden. He was something to be afraid of. He was something to be avoided. God was something that couldn't address David. David loved the Lord. David had served God. David had trusted God. But now all of a sudden something happened. What, what is it? It's that unconfessed sin. It's that deal where you have got all kinds of secrets and you're just trying to keep it. And Lord, I'm going to serve my way out of this. I'm going to fix my way out of this. Dallas Willard tells the story of his little daughter, granddaughter. She's two and a half years of age. And she's over at their house. And Dallas and his wife are, are taking care of her. Mom and dad are gone. And grandma's in the back with Larissa. And they're in the back of the, the yard. And, and they're taking care of things. Grandma, she's reading a book. And Larissa's just, she discovers the glory of mud. And, and she puts together this dirt and this water. And she says, Grandma, it's chocolate mud. It's so beautiful. And she's just having the time of her life. And Grandma's reading her book. And, oh, honey, you're doing really well. And she's, I mean, she's watching her, but, you know, out of the corner of her eye. And, and what Grandma doesn't realize is her little two-and-a-half-year-old granddaughter is way ahead of her time. Because what this little gal discovered was not just chocolate mud, but she discovered facials. And so she takes this mud and, and she puts it all over her face. It's just cool and it feels nice. And she comes over to grandma with her two little beady eyes looking at her and said, Grandma, look at my chocolate mud. And grandma's like, ah! 
she washes her down, kind of half like, oh my gosh, they're going to kill me. And she gets to Larissa all clean and she says, Larissa, no more mud on the face. Grandma's smart. She's rotated her chair now and she's watching Larissa. And Larissa's over there making more chocolate mud. Oh, no. Yeah. <laughs> Larissa's there making this mud. And she's getting ready to put it on her face and she can feel, she can just feel grandma. She looks up and she says, grandma, do you have to look at me? (laughs) Grandma being slightly enmeshed and indulgent with her granddaughter kind of rotates a little bit, but uh, she's not going to rotate too far because she's got to keep an eye on her. And so she does. And And then Larissa, she's getting that, all that chocolate mud, and she's getting it up to her face, and she looks up at Grandma one more time. She goes, Grandma, now's not the time that you should watch me. (laughs) It's kind of a fun story, but it's really profound. At the age of two and a half, a child knows how to hide. They know about shame. They know about guilt and they try and cover. It's like the guy that checks into a hotel. And when they turn on the TV, they want to make sure that you see this. You all have seen this in a, in a hotel, haven't you? They have this little sentence that says, just so you know, none of the movies that you watch by name will show up on your bill. Now, you want to think that they're looking out for you. No, they're not. They're trying to destroy you. Because there's been plenty of people, men and women, probably more guys, who look at that and think, God, can you not watch me tonight? Or students in class. She, he, doesn't matter, studying. And there's a lot on this class. And in fact, to be quite honest with you, if she passes this class and gets an A in it, uh, let me tell you what, there's, there's some scholarship money and her future is pretty well set. But if she doesn't get an A on this exam, it means that she won't have a certain GPA. She probably won't get accepted to the college of her choice. And her whole life is going to get altered. And she thinks in her heart, God, I love you. But can you not watch me for the next 10 minutes? Because the pressure is so great that her eyes lean over and look at a friend who's never gotten a B in her life. And she just whispers to God, please don't watch me today. Or gentleman goes out for lunch with a friend and they're talking and it kind of goes to their wives and the one guy kind of throws a dig at his wife she's not there but he throws that dig and the other guy kind of laughs he goes oh I know your pain and for some strange reason it felt good to have somebody laugh at his dig at his wife and so he tried it again and and the guy kind of was like is this reciprocal you dig on your wife I'll laugh And then he realizes 90 minutes later, he walks away and not only did he devour the hamburger, but he devoured his wife. 
all for just a couple of cheap laughs. And then he whispers to God, oh, please don't ever tell my wife what I said. God, would you just look away from me? Would you forget what you just saw? It's strange. If you can explain it, you're, you're, you're probably gonna you know, make a million dollars off of the book. But there's a weirdness in the fact that like Adam and Eve, we can walk with God, we can know God. And then when shame comes into our life, we somehow think that we can live outside of the view of God. Jonah thought it. Jonah thought, you know what, I, I, there's a place I can go. There's a ship I can get to. There's, a, there's an island I can, you know, beach on. There, there's some place I can go that God won't see me. Elijah thought, it's like, I'm going to get away. God, you know, this whole place is a mess. He goes to a cave. And it's somehow we think in our minds, God, just don't look at me today. And our hiding creates a fear that affects all of our relationships, most notably with God, but actually with people too. I can't tell you how many times a person, a couple, they've, they've hit a wall and they've had a major problem and then, man, they sinned, somebody did something and you know the story. And somehow they think, well, if we just go to another church, we'll get a fresh start. No, you won't because you're going to take yourself with you. And what you might have done is left people who really love you and empowered shame in your heart because they're hiding this secrecy, this covering. I I need a fresh start. I need to cover myself. I need to go do something. I need to go on a short-term mission. Trust me, I'm not against short-term mission trips any more than I am helping elderly ladies across the street unless you're trying to barter with God. And then our hiding brings a crushing, crushing weight. Oh God, David says, day and night your hand was heavy upon me. You know, it's strange what happens. One day David looks down upon Bathsheba and thought, wow, you are beautiful. I need to have you. And a week later he looks at her and says, I hate you. I hate the very looks of you. Now, did he own it? No, he more likely, you know what? If you would have just said no, I would have honored it. If you would have just said, no, I'm married, please honor Uriah. David has all kinds of justification. And that which at one moment looked beautiful now looks disgusting and ugly. When I go to bed, Lord... I'm miserable. When I get up, I'm miserable. Day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. I wake up in the middle of the night. What do I see? I see Bathsheba's face. But worse, I see Uriah's face. And and then I see my son and I see my family. And, oh God, would, would you look away? My strength It's gone. I don't have any desire to lead anymore. I don't want to be king. I don't want to serve. I don't want to lead worship. I don't even want to sing. I'm just tired. That hiding brings a crushing, crushing weight. What do we do? I think we cover. We get busy. 
A lot of ways to get busy. We can get noise in our ears. We can do all kinds of things. We can create all kinds of good things that we do. But the energy seems to be depleted. David doesn't want you to stay there, nor does God. And David doesn't stay there. I think this is one of the reasons David needs to be a model for you. Not perfect. But when God said, you have a heart after me, David, here's what it can look like. Verse five, then I acknowledged my sin to you and I did not cover up my iniquity. I did not try and put a veil over it. What does to cover up mean? Well, we probably have all done it. You know, you're having a group of people over to your house and you got to everything but that one room. You know that one room that's kind of your junk room? And nobody says when a group of people are coming over to the house, hey, make sure that door is open because I want them to see all of our junk. In fact, I'd like you to open the garage door because it's a complete disaster. And I just want to be honest for people to realize that the rest of the house looks beautiful, but the garage is a complete tornado wreck. Please let them see that. Nobody does that. No, what you do is you lock the door so they can't go in there. You, you close the bedroom. And if you don't have a door on that, you put a curtain. Why? Because you want to veil it. You want to cover it. And David is saying, no longer am I doing that. No longer am I trying to shield myself from God. I'm done with that. But notice what he does say. Back at verse 1. Blessed is he whose transgressions are forgiven whose sins are covered, whose sin the Lord does not count against him, and whose spirit there is no deceit. How on earth, David, did you get there? It's called confession. Another word I want to give to you, it's called repentance. People have defined repentance, rightly so, as a turning. Yes, it is. It's an alignment. But I think I would suggest be careful. Because repentance is not seeing the sin and saying, I, I, I'm turning away from that sin and turning to God. No, it's turning to God so that he might cover my sin. There's a human choice in that. There's a volition in that. But it's critical because the passive verb tells us in verse one that the action is not David's. It's not David doing this work. It's God doing this work. It's God who is forgiven. It's God who is covered. It's God who has done this great work. Like in Isaiah, where it says, in Isaiah it says, though your sins may be scarlet, I will make them, the Lord speaking, he says, I will make them as white as snow. When you got saved, you were absolutely assured that God is the one who forgave you. And it was the blood of Christ that did it. Don't change. Is there choice involved that you are involved in? Absolutely, yes. 
When I look and realize, God, I have sinned against you. I've sinned against Bathsheba. I have sinned against her husband. I have sinned against my family. But God, I can't fix this. I can't cleanse this. And as he turns, he confesses, oh God, you are right. You are glorious. You are forgiving. You love me. Your love is not conditional. You have not withdrawn that from me. And it's in that moment, God, would you cover me? And David says, blessed is the person whose transgressions have been forgiven. And whose sins God has covered and taken care of. When I became a Christian, when you became a Christian, you had no ability to save yourself. And when you walk with Christ, you have no ability to deal with your sin. It doesn't diminish your choice to turn. You have to confess, God, I don't want to live that way anymore. God, I made a wreck. But the covering and the forgiveness and the renewal of your heart is a work that God wants to do in you. And because of that, God continues to be a refuge. And because God's amazing grace covers our relationships with God and other people are restored. They were for David. What happens? Number one, we experience the joy of forgiveness. And it is. It's a joyous thing. David's heart is lit up. All of a sudden, his whole attitude has changed. It's not the heavy hand of God. But rather, he says, therefore, let anyone who is godly pray to you while you may be found. Surely, when the mighty waters rise, they will not reach him. In other words, oh, God, this is going to be a great day. We're going to be forgiven. We're going to be above the waters. We're not going to be drowned by the waters. It's a joyous thing. You can tell people that are forgiven. They have a joy. They have a delight about them. Not only that, they're compelled to invite others to experience such forgiveness. It's so clear. There are people who still to this day, they're believers, but they kind of have this ease of offense. They can easily be offended. You walk on eggshells around them. You know them. It's not that you don't love them. It's just that deep down, you're kind of afraid because you realize that they're always ready to snap and you have no margin of grace with them. Might I suggest that people who live that way are more likely people who don't really know the joy of forgiveness. So they hold on to grudges. They have slim margins. See, David's different. What does he say? Oh, God, you're my hiding space. Therefore, let everyone who is godly pray to you. I want everyone to experience the forgiveness that I've experienced. I want everyone to experience the freedom that I've experienced. I want everyone to delight in what it means to walk. Known by God, loved by God, not afraid that the shoe is going to drop and oh God's going to get me. He's compelled to invite others and he changes his view and his perspective towards God. He begins to see God as a hiding place rather than a crushing weight. You're my hiding place, God. Oh, you'll protect me from trouble. You'll surround me with songs of deliverance. 
Man, take a, take a look at that. God is going to set up quadraphonic messages around you. And he's going to sing about his deliverance. I am mighty to save. I delight in you. You wake up in the morning. It's not the heavy hand of God. It's the quadraphonic music of God. And you, you live through the day and all of a sudden songs come into your mind. And, and it's like God's inspiring those songs. And what do those songs say? <laughs> Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a fortress of glory to find. Oh, God, you're our conqueror. You see, when you walk in God's forgiveness... It's almost like you become invincible. It doesn't give you a license to sin. It doesn't even inspire you to sin. It actually inspires you to holiness. That's why God announces it. If you confess your sin, he is faithful and just and will freely forgive your sins. He announces it in advance because he understands That forgiveness will never stir an appetite of unholiness. Forgiveness always stirs what? A passion to honor Christ. God, you're my refuge. You're my strength. You're my delight. World War II was over. The treaties had been signed. The nations began to heal. Soldiers went back home. The war was over. Strangely, there was a gentleman in one of the islands, one of the Pacific islands, who the word about the war never got to. 29 years later, March 1974, he walks out of the jungle and asks, Is the war still on? 29 years. He ran for his life. He hid. Because he thought the war was still going. March 1974. Someone asked him, why were you hiding? The war was over. Why were you hiding? And he simply responded with, I didn't know, and I was afraid. I think sometimes there are Christians. And after today, you know. You're holding on to the sins of your past is adding to the depletion of your soul, and it might even be Lessening the days on your earth. You now know. God doesn't want you to live there. But you've been hiding. You haven't believed the message. You haven't believed it. So you, you've been covering. You've been working hard. You've been trying to look all good and Christian-like. David says, I, I came to you and I confessed. I said, oh God, what I did was horrible. But I come to you because you know how to deal with it. You know how to cleanse me. You know how to forgive me. You know how to make this heart white as snow. 
There's no reason for you to stay in the jungle hiding. There's no reason for you to lie to yourself. There's no reason for you to whisper to God, please don't look at me. Because like Jonah, God sees where you're going. Like Adam and Eve, doesn't matter how big the fig leaf is, he sees you. Like Elijah, it doesn't matter how deep into the cave you go, God sees you. But when he sees you, he doesn't look at you and say, shame on you. He says, I want to cover you. And because God has covered you with his grace, you don't need to cover yourself. Because God has covered you. He has forgiven you. You do not need to add one ounce of blood to the blood of Christ. What you need to do is confess. God, I need you. And would you please forgive me? Let's pray.